Greetings, Jeff Siegel here. I'm the host of the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Anthony Orsini. He's going to discuss how to deliver bad news, and there's probably a more euphemistic way of stating that. Let me go into his bio. He's a practicing physician, author, and frequent speaker on the topic of compassionate communication in medicine. He's a level two medical director at one of the largest neonatal intensive care units in the world, serves as the chief of patient experience and palliative care liaison for his neonatal practice, profoundly impacted by an early career experience, which we will get into, and the discovery that even the most successful and well-respected physicians struggled with their communication skills. Dr. Rossini has spent the last quarter of a century developing proven communication techniques that help doctors build rapport and quickly, and I'm going to underline that word quickly, quickly form trusting relationships with their patients. In 2011, he founded the Orsini Way, a company that provides communication training to healthcare and business professionals. His groundbreaking Breaking Bad News program, when I, when I read that, I think of the television show Breaking, breaking Bad, we'll talk about that in just a bit, has trained thousands of physicians on how to deliver tragic news, in the most effective and compassionate manner. Through his interactive workshops and coaching, he has trained senior physicians, nurses, and practitioners how to navigate the most difficult conversations, enhance their patients' overall experience, and become more fulfilled in their own lives. He has appeared in local and national news, and his work has been featured in magazines, including Forbes. He has authored a number of different papers, and we'll probably go into that as we speak, he's a TEDx, he had a TEDx presentation. And finally, his weekly podcast called Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician, hit the top 100 podcasts on Apple in just one week, which describes the appetite for the conversation. Welcome, Anthony Orsini. Thank you, Jeff. I'm honored to be asked to be on this podcast, and I'm uh, very excited to speak to you today. By the way, can I call you Tony? Are you good with that? that? In fact, everyone calls me Tony, except for my mother, who refuses to stop calling me Anthony, so please do. And, and sometimes you wonder if your mom distinguishes it between Tony and Anthony, depending upon whether she has bad news to deliver to you, correct? <laughs> yes, but my father calls me Anthony, I'm in trouble. So right. um... <laughs> Yeah, so let's, let's just dive in. Look, let's get real. No one likes delivering bad news. No one likes receiving bad news. In a perfect medical world, we would be doing more, nothing more than just saying, I know what problem you have. I can fix it. Oh, I just fixed your problem. Now have a nice life and send all of your similarly situated uh, friends and family to me and I'll do exactly the same. If only the world worked that way, but bad news is part and parcel of the practice of medicine, and some specialties um, experience more than their fair share. I know that when I practice as a neurosurgeon, including um, working uh, with trauma, something that I like doing, um, bad news came with the territory. So why don't you tell me how you got involved with, with this? What is your origin story? How did you get interested in teaching people how to deliver bad news because my fundamental assumption is that nobody likes to deliver bad news. Uh, you're exactly right. And in fact, 
Um, although almost every physician will have to deliver tragic news at one point or another, uh, studies have shown that only less than 10% of physicians actually have had formal training in it. Uh, and I was no different than anyone else uh, as a medical student and a resident. Uh, I thought I was going to cure everybody that came by and uh, we're all altruistic and we're all gung-ho. Uh, and the breaking bad news and delivering tragic news was not something that was covered in my medical school. When I give lectures and workshops, I am often asked the question, how did you get interested in this topic, which is somewhat odd. And most people assume it was because I was, uh, I had some tragedy in my life that made me interested in it, when in fact the actual opposite is true. So here I am, uh, first, uh, I think it was a second year fellow uh, in Philadelphia, a neonatal fellow, and I'm probably the most fortunate person in the world. And I have my health, my family had their health. I had five grand, uh, grandparents that were still alive, great grandmother. Uh, and so the thought of delivering tragic news to somebody, which I knew was going to have to do as a neonatologist on a frequent basis, really just scared the death out of me. And so I decided this was something I was going to learn. And there, you know, there I, I talk about the story in my book and in my TED talk. Uh, there was a night that I had to pick up a baby. The baby um, what, had, had severe pulmonary hypertension and I, mm -hmm. I had to go transport the baby from a very small hospital. I brought the baby back. The baby started to code as we got back to the hospital. Um, and despite all of our efforts, the baby died. It, it wasn't much after that that the nurse informed me that the father had followed the ambulance and was anxiously waiting for me in the delivery room. And that night, my senior position was probably one of the nicest human beings I ever met. The guy was so compassionate and he was brilliant, Jeff. I mean, he, and the kind of, you know, the kind of mentor that we all wish we had. So I thought, well, this is great. You know, this, what a great opportunity uh, to watch him give the bad news to the father. It was something that I really was in the back of my mind and was so scared about. And so I asked him if I could watch and we went back into the waiting room together. We opened up the door. And then something happened that changed my life forever. He, he opened up the door and this kind, compassionate man just simply blurted out, my name is Dr. Let's call him Dr. Smith. My name is Dr. Smith. Your baby died. And just like that, the father. Not, not much lubrication to that message. Uh, just blurted it out. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, did he just do that? The father. Uh, I remember he punched a hole in the wall and he knocked down the table lamp and he screamed and that just went on forever. You know, after a few minutes, Dr. Smith kind of found his game and started to speak to him with compassion. But by that time, the damage was done. So we bring the father back to see his baby. I stayed with him for a few minutes and then I left him alone. And when I walked out into the hallway, Dr. Smith was waiting for me. And he grabbed me by my scrubs and he pulled me within six inches of his face and I could see that he was actually crying. And he said to me really firmly, he said, do you see what I just did? Don't ever do that. And then Jeff, he walked down the hallway into the fire escape and he spent 20 minutes crying. T take and a time out here. I I've got to ask you a question. So mm -hmm. he, he recognized that that was how you should not do it. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was a teachable moment to tell you what not to do. Yet he utilized this encounter to, um, to demonstrate bad behavior, if, if you will, or something other than best, uh, best techniques. Um, Absolutely. Do you think that he knew the right way to do it and was just trying to teach you at the expense of this particular patient or this was his personality? He realized he just, I'm not sure what he'd ever come to terms with it, but he didn't want anyone to act like him going forward. If you know, you may not even know the answer to that. No, I'm pretty sure that he was like many senior physicians, even today, who uh, no matter how compassionate they are, was never trained properly. And we could talk about that later. Uh, and struggled with giving someone bad news and just wasn't good at it. And I think the added pressure of me watching uh, probably just made it worse. And being the kind, compassionate person that he was, that's why he was crying because he really did want to do it in a compassionate manner, but he just wasn't capable of doing it. He did not know how. Um, and. Uh, so that's what I think his, his message to me that day was, please don't do what I did. And uh, I took that to heart. So that's the, your origin story. That's how you learn that there is a rotten way to do something and potentially a better way. How did you acquire the skill set? How did you, I mean, th where did you turn? I mean, do you, do you find other mentors that are good? Do you start reading about it? Do you do trial and error? What were your so we're talking, uh, this is probably 1996 or so. Um, and by the way, the um, the introduction with a quarter of a century made me feel very old, by the way. <laughs> 25 years sounds a little less than a quarter of a century. I don't know why, but. Um, yeah, but I, I like the quarter century. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm running with it. Okay. So you're talking 1996. Um, and I decided at that point that I was going to uh, answer two questions. One, is there a right and a wrong way to deliver tragic news in the most compassionate manner? And if so, how do you teach it? So I, I started at that point and up until the next 10 years as a attending neonatologist at several different institutions, I started looking at literature, seeing what was out there, and there was almost none. There were very few programs that were, um, that were available. There was very few papers on that. And what I did, Jeff, is I decided that this is this is what I'm gonna I'm gonna learn, and this is how I'm gonna do it. And I just started to interview as many patients and family members that I could, both in neonatology and in adults, and just had a very formal, open-ended questions for them to tell me about the moment that their lives changed forever, what they remembered about the doctor, or what or the first responder that told them about that what made them feel better, how they thought of the doctor, whether they thought of him or her fondly or still had some angry towards them. And um, over the course of that 10 years, it, you know, I don't know the exact number, but it was it's approaching 100. And it, clearly there was a pattern that was uh, that was uh, emerging. Let me interject. Yeah, let me interject. And um, there's a, a saying, a phrase, I think it's attributed to Maya Angelou, but it may not be where I think she said that people may not remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And I would think that would be apropos to receiving bad news. Um, I mean, if you're delivering bad news and the patient's receiving bad news or the family's receiving bad news, um, 
there's only so much their brains can absorb after the initial shock. Um, so after the initial shock, they're they're just they're in survival mode and trying to even remember what you said, but they'll remember the emotional valence of how they felt. And that lingers for, for perhaps for decades. They may not remember what you said, but they'll definitely remember how you made them feel. So the tone of this and the emotional valence is something that apparently uh, can be adjusted in one direction or another. And it sounds like that's what you were learning. You know, people remembered how they felt and could give you some feedback on this. Absolutely. And then around the year 2000, um, uh, w bailey and i'm trying to remember the other author came out with their famous paper called spikes uh which was an acronym uh for delivering tragic news um and some of, and that's still the most commonly taught acronym in medical schools today uh this was in the middle of when i was doing my research and um some of it was consistent with what i was what i was learning and some of it wasn't and, uh, and so there, it started to become a topic, uh, but clearly I developed the acronym program, or as I like to call it, a roadmap, which we can talk about later. And then once I found that this was a, there was the right way of doing this, then I thought, okay, well, how do I teach it? And I taught by, by trial and error. I started off with taking a few residents and doing some role playing with them. It didn't work. I started with volunteers that didn't work. We went to simulated patients, and then in 2010, I hooked up with a professional acting production company, and we started a program called Breaking Bad News, and uh, I did the first one at Marstown Hospital in New Jersey. Uh, we did 36 residents. I presented that uh, at Grand Rounds and then at a couple conferences, and uh, it just took off from there and i'm um, still teaching it to this day you know it's, it, i hate to interrupt the gravity of the breaking bad news but i how you parse it seems to matter i keep for the moment i keep thinking of it breaking bad news similar to the you know news about the amazing television series that <laughs> i watched 63 episodes on my phone that's how captivated I was, but but I digress, of course. It's funny. People tell me that all the time. I, I actually trademarked Breaking Bad News um, at about the same time that that show was coming out. So. <laughs> well, you were in front of it, it sounds like. You were in front of Heisenberg uh, with that. So what are the, some of the principles? Well, let's, let's cut right to the chase. Um, if you were to educate and guide a resident on how to break bad news, and let's say you only had five minutes to teach the core concepts of this before they started doing practice sessions what were the what would be the bullet points you'd want to put into their their evolving brains uh, oh. to, to, to learn about this and to you know to start getting interested and getting better at it well here the first step is to start to think of delivering tragic news just to avoid keep saying breaking bad news uh, the first thing that you have to do is to stop thinking of it as a task that yeah. just needs to be completed and begin to think of it as a skill that you're proud of. Now, in order to go from being a task to a skill, you have to learn. Uh, and uh, one of the things about Dr. Smith was since he never learned it, um, he was never able to figure out how to do it well. And so he was just shooting from the hip, if you will. 
and you know, if you asked me to do an appendectomy as a neonatologist, I'd be pretty darn nervous. Right. And I probably would try to get it over with quickly. So the first thing we have to do is explain to the, and, and you know, we're talking about residents a lot, but I, I, I trained a lot of senior physicians with 20, 30 years experience. Mm-hmm. is to get to change that mindset to saying this is an opportunity because as doctors you know that we we see death or bad things that are happening as a failure right we're, that we're back in that altruistic medical school thing um, but at first I want you to understand the first thing is that this is an opportunity for you to help the family and the patient when they need it the most in fact that's the title of many of my keynote speaking is helping the families when they need it the most so Let's start thinking of it as a skill like anything else, like doing surgery or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the first step. And then the second step is to say, let's stop thinking about delivering tragic news or any serious conversation. It doesn't have to be super tragic. Let's stop thinking of it as informational. In 2000, when spikes came out, uh, the internet wasn't what it is today. Google wasn't what it is today. Um, and we tend to be thinking as physicians that my job is to educate. And of course it is. If you're giving somebody a diagnosis of a brain tumor, you kind of, you have to explain to them about that brain tumor. But that is not your initial goal. And I'll even joke with some of the, not so much the senior attendees, but I'll say to a lot of doctors and, and, and first responders, what was your goal when you walked into that room? And they'll tell me, well, let's give them all the information. And I kind of tongue-in-cheek say, well, why don't you just give them a Google Doc? <laughs> complete. And so they look at me like, no, you're right. So, I mean, I would think that the chief goal, if you had to distill it to one thing, would be to help a grieving individual navigate the five worst minutes of their life as a healer. That would be something that, I mean, it may be an impossible task, but information may be part of that. But I can't imagine that being the core component of, you know, the interaction. You're 100% right, but yet that is 99 out of 100. That's the answer I get. So what I what I talk about in my book and when I give my workshops, I say there's three goals of delivering tragic news. That when you leave that room, that patient should feel that that was a genuinely compassionate doctor, right? Who genuinely understood that he or she literally redefined my life. So that there's genuine, and that's what you're doing, by the way, you're redefining this person from a wife to a widow, Mm -hmm. to a healthy person, to a cancer, to somebody who had a child who now has a brain damaged child. So you're redefining your life. So the number one goal is that when you leave, that patient or family should say that was a compassionate doctor who really understood the gravity of the situation. Number two, that the patient should feel that you're the expert in the room, that they should be able to figuratively put their arms around your shoulders and you will guide them. Mm -hmm. They just changed your life. They don't know what to do next. And so they have to trust that you're the expert in the room. And if you're in that room delivering that news and you're rushed and you're uncomfortable and you're showing uh, that you're not confident, you're not going to meet goal number two. Right. And then the final goal is that you are not going to leave them and that you're going to, you're going to make sure that they're taken care of from this point on, whether that means I'm going to refer you to an oncologist 
but I'm going to, as your primary doctor, I promise I'm going to stay involved in your care and I'm going to follow up with you. And if it's, if it's okay with you, I'm going to call you tomorrow to make sure you're okay. If you can accomplish those three goals, then you're done. I mean, that you're, you're, you're home free there. It's, it's not about, none of it is about, I want to make sure they understand the difference between stage two and stage three cancer. That's not the goal. Right. And, and that third one is interesting where you're describing the doctor taking ownership, even if that doctor can't, uh, continue to care for the patient directly uh, they'll take ownership of the tr of a transition what the next step would look like and the the subtext is i will not abandon you i know this is a difficult time i will not abandon you and you don't have to use that word uh, the word abandon well actually sometimes using it saying i will stay by your side i will not abandon you the, those can be very comforting if they're sincere and uh, that information is well received or received at all by the patient of the family. And here's a great example, you know, even, and I do a lot of training, not just for bad news, but I do patient experience training and, and teaching doctors just how to build rapport and, and build practices and improve their patient experience. When you leave that room, you know, I think don't sound like the Verizon guy or the Apple genius. And what I mean by that is when you call Microsoft or Apple and you're on tech with them and, and they fix your problem, what's the last thing they say to you? Well, they probably, they probably say something, if you have any issues, call me or something like that. Uh, they generally say, before we hang up, Dr. Orsini, is there anything else I can help you with, right? They always say that, right? And you know, <laughs> you know that that tech in the other line is praying that you say no. <laughs> because yeah. he's got 25 other people on the queue. So when we say as doctors, you know, don't hesitate to call if you have any questions. That is a shallow script because that patient perceives that as, I hope you don't have any questions. <laughs> yes. So yes. it's almost so, like saying, would you mind giving me a review at the end of the yeah. conversation? So uh, instead of I, saying that, say, I will, um, you know, if it's okay, I'd like to check up on you in tomorrow morning, or let's make, you're gonna go see the oncologist, let's make an appointment uh, so that I know that I'll see you again on Friday. Or if you're inpatient, uh, I have a couple other people to to round with, but um, I'll come back and check on you and be specific in 20 minutes. So you're minutes. saying you've moved from a vague lack of promise, if you will, to a concrete promise, um, yeah, a it, concrete promise to follow up, um, which, you know, is, is something on the calendar or at least a plan to get something on the calendar. Yeah, it's a shallow script to say it the other way. That's why I say don't, don't sound like the Apple genius tech. Hmm. It's interesting that Apple didn't get that right because they have all the money in the world to get it right. And you, you, you think that- And for your listeners, it's not a knock on Apple. It could be anybody. So. <laughs> well, let, let me kind of change gears here. My, my gestalt is that not all patients and families are the same and you may need different communication skill sets to deal with them individually. So that's number one. And then number two is that there are different types of bad news. We're going to stay with the theme of bad news for the moment. So let me give you my view of the world with different types of bad news. And it's more than this list, but a patient presents with a bad uh, condition and you took care of the patient after the problem started, meaning that it's the shit happens problem, meaning that 
you're there after the problem already manifests itself. So that's one type of bad news. Number two would be patient has an underlying condition which entails some risk and it's possible for there to be a good outcome or a bad, bad outcome despite your best efforts. The pa this patient had a bad outcome. You know immediately there is a problem. So that's number two. Number three is that uh, there's risk with the patient's condition and or your treatment. Time goes by, patient does eventually experience the risk, for example, a pulmonary embolus after surgery or recurrence of cancer month, months to years later. So that's bucket number three. Then the final one, um, which is <laughs> bad for the doctor and the patient, is that you, the doctor, cause an unexpected bad outcome, like a wrong level surgery, or you left a sponge in the patient. I mean, truly, you did not intend for that to happen, it, although maybe it would be in the set of risk in the consent form. Uh, these are never events, and it shouldn't have happened to this patient, but it did, and the patient needs to know, and there needs to be a solution. I would think that each of these different categories might require a different type of communication, or maybe it's the same style but different content. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that um, each of those scenarios uh, requires the same concept of delivering bad news. And what I mean by that, that's why the program acronym works so well, is that you know, the first P is, is plan and position. So no matter what scenario you're describing, uh, the first thing that you have to do is have a plan before you go in to have that conversation, that difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. I am shocked, Jeff, on how many doctors and business leaders uh, that I train will go into a difficult conversation without plan. And, and, and that's amazing. And I'll say, what was your plan? Well, I don't know. I was just going to tell them. Like, they're you have to be the director of the room and you have to sit stand there outside the door and take a moment to say okay how am i going to do this how am i going to present this medical error um, if it's bad news um, how bad is it how much hope do i want to leave uh, the number one rule of breaking bad news is always break it gradually and gradually maybe over that conversation or it may be over a course of the next few weeks you know, uh, this is cancer, let's wait for the pathology biopsy to come back. Right. Um, so the general concepts are the same. Um, each one has its little nuances and your plan may change the difference. But in the end, um, it's all about relationships, which is the second R, and your ability to form that relationship. So, you know, you mentioned the leaving the sponge. You and I had this conversation before how uh, people are much, much less likely to file for malpractice if they have a relationship with their doctor. And it doesn't have to be a long-term relationship. It can be just a short-term relationship. Uh, but if, if they trust their doctor and you're able to uh, really bond with that patient, uh, I use a, in my book, I talk about the concept of it's hard to fire your best friend, which is something my mother used to tell me all the time. Um, if that patient feels that you are genuinely uh, concerned with them and you're meeting those three goals, uh, I think that it, it'll work. Now, there's different cultural differences, and sometimes you make a plan and that plan changes, uh, but you want, to, you want to be able to stick to those general concepts, and they'll work for you in almost every situation. 
You know, the building relationship is important. I mean, having done this for now approximately 20 years, um, what have we learned by speaking to plaintiff attorneys? They said, for the most part, um, even people who are seriously injured are not doing it primarily for the money, not doing it primarily for the money. They're doing it to get answers, and they feel as if they're not getting answers. And to your point, the, the greater the likelihood the patient likes the doctor, all other things being equal, the less likely you will be sued. So let me repeat that. The more effort you put into a strong relationship where the patient likes you, the harder it will be for the patient to pull the trigger and sue you. Now, it doesn't mean you won't get sued. You may still get sued, particularly if there's a significant and substantive injury and the patient needs the money just to survive but it'll be more challenging and it'll be more gut-wrenching for them to do it. And they may settle for a, a smaller payout. There are a lot of different things, meaning it's worth the effort up front to build that relationship. And one of the things I think you, I think tangentially you allude on it is how do you communicate with a patient? And I think in practices where patients don't seem to get as much information. I have found that when the doctor gives the patient or the family their mobile phone number after a procedure, maybe an outpatient procedure, the patient goes home, you're sending a signal that call me directly if there's any problem. This is my private mobile number. I want to hear from you directly. You don't necessarily have to call an impersonal answering service. It's likely to drop the ball. I will not abandon you. That little signal demonstrates to the patient that you want a substantive relationship and you want to hear from them if they have any issues. Now, most doc many doctors say, there's no way I'm giving out my mobile number. I will never be able to get off the phone. Um, people will call me nonstop. I've learned that's not the case. The vast majority of patients respect the sanctity of that mobile number and will err on the side of caution in not using it. And they tend to triage themselves really well. My point being is that you get a lot more out of the signal of giving them your phone number than the pain of irresponsible patients calling you, um, you know, all through the night, every night um, against your will. And I think it goes back to how do you build relationships? And this is just one concrete way to potentially, do. and by the way, you can always use burner phones, <laughs> going back to the Breaking Bad, where if you don't want to give them the, that phone, just, you know, get a second phone that if someone does become, you know, a very challenging and difficult patient, it's your second mobile phone, kind of like when we used to have two beepers, you know, I don't, even one beeper was horrible, but the second beeper was, was logarithmically more horrible than, than the first. So what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that gets embedded into the equation or is this that just a sideshow? No, absolutely. These are just small gestures. Uh, and I agree, patients generally don't abuse that, but they're small gestures. There's even singular words that we can change when we introduce ourselves. Uh, think little things that you can do can go a long way in building patient satisfaction and building that bond. You know, I'll, I'll give you a quick story that I always talk about when I do my patient experience workshops. Uh, a few years ago, I need to go to a cardiologist. I have high blood pressure. And just, you know, you need to go to a cardiologist. So I call up a cardiology group in my hospital system. 
And I said, you know, kind of having little palpitations every now and then. This is Dr. Orsini. I'm on staff here. Can you, uh, can you get me an appointment? And they said, yeah, the earliest appointment is like four weeks from Tuesday. So Boy, and you're a doctor too. Yeah, I'm, I'm on staff here. Can you do something for me? And, and the, the uh, secretary said, nope. Sorry. Well, hang on. Do you think they gave you four weeks because you're a doctor and everybody else can get in in one week? I don't know. Maybe so. But okay. she she answers me. No, I'll never forget. It. This is this is her customer service. Nope. Yeah. So um, so I, I get a little angry. I hang the phone up and I say, no, thank you. And uh, I call the next group on the list. And the woman says, you know, it's four weeks. And I said, you know, I'm on staff here. You think maybe you can help me out? And she says, oh, Dr. Orsini, let me see what I can do. And she puts me on hold. And in my heart, Jeff, uh, she took the next person. She went to the bathroom. She, she probably didn't even try. But she got back on the phone and she said, you know, Dr. Orsini, I tried everything. But, you know, we got a couple of cardiologists on, on vacation. And that's the earliest I can help you with. But if I get any... Uh, cancellations, I promise I'll call you. And I said, no problem. I'll take the four weeks. The, the point is, it was the mere gesture. Yeah. That she wanted to go the extra mile. I, I tell doctors all the time, you diagnose somebody with cancer, what's the most important thing to that patient? They want to see the oncologist now. Right. They don't want to wait four weeks. So say to the patient, you know what? Dr. Jones is an excellent oncologist. I would trust him with my family. I know him personally. Let me see what I can do about getting you in early. You know how far that goes for your relationship? They'll swear that you're the greatest and nicest person that ever lived. So it's just the gesture that helps. Even if you get to the same outcome, the perception that you made an effort, and frequently the, the gesture will be successful in terms of getting them to a better outcome, even if you can't have the oncologist see them tomorrow, you may actually accelerate when, you know, a cold call would have got them in. So um, I think getting any success in this particular situation makes you look like a hero. Um, now, you were talking about medical errors and uh, people with yeah. malpractice lawsuits. When I have a death, I've been doing this for 20 years. If I have a death in my NICU and I'm sitting with the family when the baby dies or whatever, I will always, uh, the last thing I say to them is, invariably, you may have some questions, you know, when things settle down in a week or two, you know, please, here's my card, call me and we'll sit down and we'll talk about, you know, what happened. That tells them I'm not trying to hide anything and I'm an open book to you. And most of the time they don't call, but sometimes they do. Boy, do they appreciate that, Jeff. They do appreciate it. And it's the same advice we typically give our members in medical justice, which is be as transparent and as open as you possibly can, particularly if there's nothing to hide. I mean, you might as well quickly transfer information from point A to point B and put to rest any narrative in their brain that you're hiding something. I think our brains work in horrible ways sometimes. It's a if there's an information vacuum, uh, we patients, humans, will fill it in with the worst possible news. Um, we attribute um, we attribute malice 
to that which is better explained by ineptitude. I love that mm-hmm. uh, that saying, which is we think the worst of people when it's just that they're either mostly lazy or incompetent. And in this particular situation with communication, if you have the facts at your fingertips, don't make the patient or their family work for it. This is a very trying time for them. You've got a magic window of opportunity to build a stronger bridge, particularly if one of the goals is to try and avoid litigation. And let me tell you, if you can do, if you can invest a few minutes with a difficult patient to avoid litigation, the payoff is enormous. We're talking about money. We're talking about time. We're talking about headache. We're talking about anxiety. Um, All it takes is being deposed one time to realize you don't want to be in the hot seat. And if you can do that just by having a um, a healthy conversation with a patient to answer their questions or their family. Why wouldn't everyone do that? And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.